Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is the Do One Better podcast, and I am your host, Alberto Ligi. It's a great pleasure to have Patrick Dunn on board for today's episode. He's someone I've known for quite a few years now. And before I get into the various hats that he wears, I just want to tell a little bit about the podcast itself, which is really about getting listeners uh, more engaged in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. So that's really the driving force behind the Do One Better podcast. Patrick is someone, like I said, who I've known for quite a while, and he wears many distinguished hats. He is the chair of the EY Foundation, that's uh, Ernst and Young's foundation. He's the chair also of Warwick in Africa and the founder of that initiative. That's part of the Warwick University and also chair of ESA, the Education Sub-Saharan Africa Initiative. Uh, And besides that, he's also an advisor on governance and leadership, running Board Delta, and he spent over a quarter of a century, if you don't mind me saying, at 3i, well-known private equity house, and also, as if that's not enough, visiting professor at Cranfield School of Management, and I think it's fair to say extremely passionate about education and leadership. So, Patrick, tell us a little bit more about yourself, and, and, uh, and thanks so much for, for joining us today. Well, absolutely my pleasure, Alberto, and, and, and it's a great idea. As, uh, I just want to say that, too. I think... Um, Probably we're too busy giving our heads down doing doing stuff to talk much about it. But uh, and I, li- I like the sort of do one better. Well, um, <laughs> my, my my background is I, mean, I was born in in inner city inner city Liverpool, right. uh, Irish immigrant kind of family. Uh, pretty tough start in life, but got lucky. I was okay at maths. Had an amazing maths teacher, completely mad but amazing guy. And he gave me two things really. He gave me sort of belief in myself and. Um, and actually, a better, you know, great teaching on maths. So I got to Warwick University, got into the chemical industry, did an MBA, and then got into private equity. So that was kind of my professional career. But one of the great things about 3i was that if you were kind of meeting your objectives and delivering what you should be doing, they kind of gave you the freedom to do some other stuff. Right. So I was able to build some social enterprises. Um, be on the Higgs Review around corporate governance, wrote some books on boards, did a whole manner of things. Um, so that, that's crudely my, my background. I mean, today, uh, you, you've already said what I do. So I've kind of built four social enterprises. Uh, I have a business that's focused on boards and I, I write. Uh, so, so that's basically me. I see. So you're uh, at 24 hours in the day. Is that enough for you or you're running out of hours in every every day? <laughs> Well, I, I have. Um, I, I'm also mildly dyslexic, as you know, Alberto, but, but others obviously wouldn't. So I tend to use a lot of mathematical symbols to guide my life. And one of them is the normal distribution, which I have on the left axis a bell curve. I have on the left axis effectiveness, on the right axis pressure. Right. And I'm constantly thinking hard about uh, not taking on too much, delegating to people so that I can try and occupy uh even if it's only for fleeting moments 
um, that space on the curve where you know I'm not under too much pressure, but I'm I've got enough pressure to make me effective. That sounds like you've thought about this. Let me ask you a question. I mean, I know you have this private equity background. Private equity houses known for the dispassionate analysis and tackling things in a more rigorous way than, than than other sectors, perhaps. And I'm wondering the notion of quantifying everything, the do, the notion of having dashboards, the notion of KPIs and impact measurement and all of that. How does that come into play with your everyday as you're running uh, these various uh, social enterprises and foundations? So, I mean, probably the best way to, to answer that through a practical example. So when we founded Work in Africa, so we teach children in slums and trained teachers in slums uh, in, in Africa and rural areas. There's no electricity in most of the places we teach. There's no data. There's not even attendance records in many of the schools when we start. So you could say, well, you know, it's pretty tough to get any measure of yeah. uh, any mythics. So I figured, you know, you could measure the attendance of kids turning up. You can measure how they perform against a test. You can see how they develop over the time you're there and you can measure what it costs you to to teach a child a month so you can do that what you find more difficult to measure though is what i call twinkle okay and when you see uh, a girl who's been told she can't do maths because she's a girl uh get maths do better than the boys in her class and want to be a teacher you know you, you can measure some aspects of that but that twinkle in the eye, that confidence, that that extra motivation is something it's hard to do. So my theory on these things is, and I've done this in each of the things I've been working with, is kind of don't get overcomplicated about measurement and, and that. Mm-hmm. Measure the things that matter and do that really well. Right. And basically be aware and alive to the things that are harder to measure but also matter, that, that twinkle factor and confidence is something, if you work in the disadvantaged young people area where I focused my time, um, but they're quite hard to measure. They're not impossible in some aspects, but you kind of, you need a bit of both. You need the quants, the quants and you need the quals, if you, if you like. Is that, that sort of approach, and, and perhaps you could tell us a little bit also about some of the other uh, outfits that you're, you're running. So Ernst & Young global accountancy, auditing, consultancy firm. You're the chair of their foundation. I would imagine that they're pretty good with measuring things, but that's my intuition. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Tell me a little bit about that. It's a huge corporate foundation. Give us a little bit of insight. So the EY Foundation is relatively young, so it's four and a half years old. And it okay. was basically, found, there, were, there were a couple of activities within EY which were running in the corporate responsibility team to help disadvantaged kids get into work. They right. had a really good model, but it was really small. So uh, it was quite London-centric, and it was 100 or, or, or more young, young people and, and volunteers. They felt, actually, if they took a social enterprise approach to that, they could uh, have a lot more impact on the one hand, also mm-hmm. create a lot more volunteering opportunities for their staff because they had a, way more volunteers than uh, volunteering opportunities, if you like. And also, they wanted to improve the diversity of their, their, their talent pipeline. Sure. So they basically spun out those activities, formed an independent charity, which is 
I chair. I'm not an EY person by background, so okay. I'm pro bono, pro bono independent chair. We actually have a majority independent board, so that's a very unusual type of corporate foundation. Mm-hmm. And we raise money. We have our you know core funding from EY, but we raise several million more from other people as well. Uh, and for those people, we're basically selling impact. So if you really care about young disadvantaged people and you want to get them into work, here's a model which works. You pay per young person. Uh, you want to see through that program, and we deliver those those outcomes for you. In in four and a half years, we've grown very rapidly. So we're now in seventeen uh, cities. We have we're at a run rate of about three thousand young people a year. Mm-hmm. We we have. Uh, 3,000 volunteers. We've engaged a couple of hundred other companies in in supporting the delivery and using the model. So even some big government departments, so the Ministry of Justice and Home Office and, and, and Cabinet Office, for, for example. And we've basically uh, we've raised a couple of million on top of the EY money too, but we've done that by mobilising people as well as through a whole range of corporate partnerships. Okay. And, it, and it's basically that focus of what can we do to maximize the, uh, the chances for a young person from we have different programs for different types of disadvantage. What can we do to maximize their chances and get employers to think differently about recruiting people from more disadvantaged yeah. backgrounds? I mean, I remember when I started work, it was a nightmare. You know, there were very few people like me from backgrounds like mine. I didn't have many of those shared experiences that other people had. I felt an, an absolute outsider. So I know how that feels and I know how hard that is to, to, to break into. So we're dealing not just with the skills development of the young people, but, but the other aspects too. Are these partnerships, you mentioned numerous corporate and governmental partnerships and collaborations, are they difficult to set up? I mean, does, does somebody need to be an and Ernst and Young, in order to be able to embark or, or start these sort of partnerships, or can a less well-known brand, even an entirely unknown brand, seek out partnerships um, that might prove fruitful and 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 um, and uh, and that are viable to to set up in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So we've we started with obviously where EY has relationships, obviously non audit ones because of the regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we have grown and we've grown our corporate partners, so for example in in Stoke, um, where EY doesn't have an office, but we're very active. You know, we might be working with SMEs there who you might not have heard of, but you know, they're great little businesses. So. And we're quite keen to develop that because SMEs and you know private businesses, for example, are very large employers in in the, in, in the UK. You know? Yes, are are corporate foundations very um, different from normal non corporate foundations? And you know, I used to I used to work for uh, the Novak Djokovic Foundation. We had a very high profile individual who who was the founder that presented presented certain dynamics. I've seen people who are you know, in family offices who have foundations and, and I've seen quite a few corporate outfits. And I'm curious whether you, particularly having had direct experience in so many different types of organizations, whether there's anything particularly noticeable about working for a, a, a sort of global corporate foundation and the drivers behind that as well, I suppose. It's a question of mindset. So okay. m- my mindset as independent chair is that I'm not working for EY. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an independent person, and I view EY as a fantastic kind of majority shareholder, if you like, right. um, where they, you know, they provide uh, the majority of our funding, but not all of our funding. So we do have an independent majority board, as I as I mentioned. We we regulate the relationship with EY in quite an interesting way. I mean, we have a basically a service agreement. So the firm gives us money and services, so we have no premises costs, for example, which right. is a you know, fantastic Amazing. thing if you want to build, uh, grow a national charity quickly. Uh, not having to pay for any premises is just fantastic. And in return for that, we will deliver certain outcomes. So numbers of volunteering opportunities for EY or uh, the impact on the, on, on the young people. Uh, we get a lot of things from EY apart from the money. And we have that sort of EY at the front of our name. And so in, in the terms of the way that we employ people, because all of our staff are employed by the foundation, okay. not EY. EY wants to make sure that we're employing people in a good way. So I think that's a very positive thing. So our employment practices are, you know, really strong and good. They want to know that we're good as we possibly can be on safeguarding, for example. Right. So we meet the standards required uh, of, of that too. So it's a good grown-up relationship where you know I think the the social impact is is really high. But I think why the firm will also benefit because you know the engagement of staff who volunteer is high. So um, you know that's important for uh, important for them. But the whole thing is driven by the young people, really. You yes. Know, how profound an impact can we have for a young person, and and how many? In, in really disadvantaged places. Yeah. The whole impact, I mean, you, you've mentioned that um, that word a few times and we, and we want to measure it. Obviously, you have the right experience having come from private equity. Uh, Ernst & Young obviously have the right experience in terms of being able to quantify a million different things. Some people may be able to emulate that, some may not. But I'm curious, another bit that seems to be uh, present in what you do, and you could shed some light on this, is the setup of certain platforms that would facilitate or enable impact and, and transformative work to happen. So besides the partnerships, besides quantifying things, I know you were very involved with, with a data project recently. And I'd love to know a little bit more about that and how that is sort of bringing key stakeholders together and facilitating lives to move forward in a favorable way where otherwise they might be stuck in the mud, for, for lack of a better uh, expression. Yeah, what you're referring to is ESSA, is is which is Education of Southern Africa. And there are two projects there. The first project is the demographics of faculty. Um, mm-hmm. please, please be patient. It's not as geeky as it sounds. Okay. Uh, and the and the scholarship impact hub, and they, they have something in common, which you'll, you'll discover very quickly. So a lot of people have been telling me there's going to be 500 new universities in Africa, you know, billion more people, participation rates rising. This means there'll be a massive expansion of African universities and tech companies and building companies getting very excited about this. And I'm sort of sitting there thinking, well, where will all the faculty come from? Because right. even if you use the most advanced blended learning techniques, you're going to need a large number of people. And my understanding from, you know, 13 years of being on the ground in Africa with work in Africa is that there aren't enough faculty now. So how's that going to work? And when I heard people talk, 
it's, there seems to be very little evidence for that. Mm-hmm. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we could model a country and we could have the African Association of Universities, which is the, the member network of African universities, has nearly 400 universities in their, in their network. We picked the world-leading demographic analysis team in the Population Reference Bureau in, mm-hmm. in Washington, and we get a government like Ghana, so Ghana is a, a good-sized country, so just under 30 million people. It has a, a national council for tertiary education who sort of manages the statistics and helps with the policy development and so on. Mm-hmm. So if we could get those people to partner and we could model Ghana and we could see today kind of what's the current state of play and we could use the youth bulge data coming forward and look at how will, if there is a gap, how will that gap emerge? That would be really useful information to to um, influence investment in in Ghana higher education. So in in six months, basically, we did it. We modeled 213 institutions. Right. Um, we, we looked at, in broad categories of arts, humanities, and science, we looked at gender, we looked at the grades of faculty, so, you know, whether you're a professor or you just started out, we did age, age profiling, mm-hmm. um, gender, all of that. And we, we involved leaders of, of uh, the institutions in the country from the very start. So right. in terms of when we thought this is how we might do it, we, we sense-checked that with them. When we were getting early results, we sense-checked those with them. When we had the final results, we sense-checked those with them. And now, in, in fact, I'm off to Ghana on, on Sunday. Okay. Uh, we're, we're starting the process of saying, okay, so this is kind of what we've learned. What are we now going to do? So there is a gap. And if you look at the current practice, you know, what do we need to change to, to make that happen? And one of the things we need to change is to change the scholarship game. Okay. Because the the limiting factor, if you like, on developing the pool of quality faculty is the number of PhDs that enter the system. Mm-hmm. If you want every academic to be, have a PhD, then that seems like an obvious thing to look at. And at the moment, you know, there's there's a lot of scholarships for lots of things, but there's not as many as are needed for that. So there's a discussion to be had around how do you change uh, you know the, the investment flow towards PhD. So that was the demographics of faculty. Is it is it um, a challenge working in sub-Saharan Africa? And I mentioned this because. Well, it's difficult to read the Financial Times these days without reading articles on philanthropy, and and some are are positive, some are uh, more critical or skeptical. And I'm just curious uh, for somebody who might be in London or New York, and they're keen to understand how effectively uh, funds might be invested in Sub-Saharan Africa. And are there some challenges that you might think would be worth highlighting? Yes, yeah, you can't get away from some of the the governance issues. Um, right. So for each activity I, I'm involved in, I, I kind of have a 3P kind of triangle in my mind, which is purpose, people, and process. Mm-hmm. So usually I found, so, you know, if the first time you wander into a slum and want to help someone, you know, you've got to be clear what, what the point of what you're doing is, and, and other people have to understand that. Otherwise, they won't keep their eyes open for you and they won't help you. You really need the right people who show. It's interesting. In, in work after we have an expression, it's I hear, it's a, it's a dyslexic joke. Okay. I hate. I H E E R, and it and it's to inspire with humility, energy, empathy, and respect. 
and in our training of volunteers, we hammer into them, you know, you have to show humility, you have to show respect, but you've also got to inspire, be a character, have energy and those things too. And I think there's a lot about working in Africa, which is about humility. Okay. Um, and we all have to accept in the North that, you know, the past is not good in terms of some of the things that our ancestors may have may have done. And we also uh, have in the, in, in the North a tendency to patronize very easily. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's it's so important that we we actually do not do that. That we, you know, we know nothing about um, you know, a lot of these things, and we have to learn before we start to, mm-hmm. to to try and help. So I think I've learned that. I've learned in terms of you know the obvious the, the c word, the, the corruption. You know, one of the things which drove me to found ESSA was was the you know the shocking level of ghost teachers in many countries. So uh-huh. these are fictitious teachers on payrolls. The shocking level of what I would call at zombie teachers. So, you know, they physically are there, but they don't do anything. Right. Whether someone's mate, mate is getting a salary, but they don't actually do any teaching. Uh, or moonlighters, you know, people taking two salaries for the same time. You know, you think if that investment were applied positively, how much better things would be. But the way to solve that problem is not to go on a big moral high ground. The way to change that problem is to change payroll systems. Okay. So you cannot make multiple payments to the same person on the same day with the same bank account number. Um, so I think sometimes you you have to, and it probably is where private equity background helps because okay. you you think more about outcomes than rah-rah. And so you know, I have a very low public profile. I don't do many interviews like this, as you, as, as you know, Alberto. I'm not really interested in public profile. I'm interested in helping young people. And so you know, if I do something that will, you know, like this, which I think, you know, if there's someone out there who wants to join our band, as it were, mm-hmm. then, that, then, you know, that's a positive outcome for this. Uh, but I think there's too much philanthropy, as I would call it. Okay. Um, and there's also... I think the way that, you know, I helped with the, the foundation of the European Venture Philanthropy Association and a lot of that impact stuff. But I think there's some people who are slaves to impact measurements who don't really get what the social bit of impact is. So I think there's a spectrum and I try as best I can, uh, despite my mathematical tendencies to be okay. somewhere neatly in, neatly in the middle. Um, it's a hard challenge to, to keep there, but I try to remember uh, we're talking about humans every time we do something. We're trying to impact, you know, a, a human's life, a fellow, a fellow human's life, and you cannot be mechanical about that. I mean, one thing that strikes me is that and you mentioned a little bit this dichotomy or tug between philanthropy and impact, and sometimes they align. Sometimes there's different camps or schools of thought in that. But if I take you, I look at you as someone who's quite holistic and. Um, you, you're involved in various different organizations and they're making an impact, quote unquote, in various different ways. But ultimately, I mean, I think the common denominator in everything you do is you. And you are someone who I would describe as a, a change maker, someone who's leading and someone who is a philanthropist and sort of using creative thinking to, to make great things happen wherever you might be and sort of 
making the context around you. So tell me as a philanthropist and also as a social entrepreneur, what is it that somebody listening to this podcast who maybe is interested in deploying their resources and their talent to better the world around them? What are some of the key takeaways you think they might be um, well advised to embrace? I suppose the first thing is to be, is to think about what you're good at, what's available and what you want to do. Because if what you're good at is what you want to do and it's available, you're going to have a happy time. So if what you're good at no one wants, that's frustration. (laughs) Um, If what you're good at and what you want to do isn't available, that's frustration too. So I think being really clear about the cause and having a, you know, an identity with that cause and a, and a feeling for that cause matters matters a lot, I think. Uh, so, for example, you know, I'm rubbish in the healthcare space or animals. You know, that uh, you know, I like looking at animals, but you know, that's not really the kick for me. It, it's it's you know, helping kids who have backgrounds like mine break through. Right. Um, so, I think that's an important thing. I think I'd refer back to that purpose, people, process thing. So, if you want to get mm-hmm. start up something. You, know, you have to be really clear about what it is that you're going to do, not just what the problem is, but what. So, you know, if you look at ESSA, you know, we're, we're we're trying to join up, inform, inspire, and increase impact for everyone investing in sub-Saharan Africa. That's kind of we don't do anything that isn't to do with that. That's what we that's what we do at work in Africa. You know, we teach kids and we train teachers at LEAP. We help young people manage conflict more effectively. At the EY Foundation, we help disadvantaged young people into work. So that, that clarity of purpose, I think, is really important. And, and really focus on getting the right people to, to help you. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, get your operating model and your process uh, and your process right. You know, when we started work in Africa, I'd never been to Africa. And we, you know, we did a pilot and we did, we, we had 12 volunteers and we, we'd raised 30,000 pounds and it cost us 44 pounds per child to teach that month that we taught. Now, you know, we've helped over 600,000 children. Wow. Uh, we get 30 to 40% improvements in their test results and it costs us less than 10 pounds a month to teach a child. And be really clear about what you're you're doing and what the the effect is, and and generally the money will flow. Not always, mm-hmm. but I think if you if you really focus on the thing, you know, the difference you're trying to make, and you get the right people, uh, and you've got good, good straightforward, not lots of, but good straightforward process, it, it just tends to happen. That's fascinating. And is a team uh, building a team? The same everywhere? I mean, mean, you said you'd never been to Africa before, and okay, maybe your experience of building teams was in a particular sector or industry, but I imagine culturally there might be some challenges or some differences. And Are are there some basics that, look, building a team is just some common sense, or or is it... um... So, at least now I'm just the patron, so... You know, we've been very fortunate. We built a strong board, a strong team. We had really good succession for me as chair. It's got a team of about 30 people. It's, you know, it's got really good momentum behind it. At EY Foundation, uh, similarly, we have actually had a first-time CEO. Okay. Uh, I've, quite liked, I've quite liked recruiting first-time CEOs, and that's, worked well. that's, that's kind of worked well 
for me as chair. So I tend in the ones I founded, I was sort of in the founder and chair at the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, get a good CEO in who builds a good team, build a good board around you and build succession in that board. So right. that, you know, so, so I think in, uh, certainly in the, the well, we've, we've been through the whole cycle at Leap, but with and the Leap others. Is, we haven't really of, touched on Leap, but tell me briefly about Leap before we. So Leap helps young people manage conflict more effectively. So we, we work in 14 prisons. We work with difficult places, so difficult estates in the UK. And we basically help people manage conflict more effectively by getting them to deal with stuff that, that, that has not been dealt with, learn the techniques of conflict management. So in a prison, for example, you talked about impact before, and mm-hmm. you know, we look at waypoints. Way so if you're a prisoner who's not involved in any of the prison programs because you're too violent verbally or physically, the first thing we need to do is to get you to control your behavior and realize the consequences of your actions get you to start taking part in those programs. And if you can then do well at those programs, you know, you get out early. If you get out early and you, your reoffending uh, rate is much lower, so you're not going back in and you get a job and you keep a job. So there are various waypoints along the way. And, and Leap's role is, is really around training young people to manage conflict more effectively. Interestingly, we developed a, a really neat social enterprise activity, which is, using the young people that we've trained to train people in corporates uh, uh-huh. and other people who work with young people. So we've trained M&A lawyers, bankers, Amazing. and it's a fantastic way. And actually, it's very powerful training, and the corporates love it. Um, it's good high-margin okay. uh, income for, for, for Lee. And most of all, for our young people, it's giving them experience of workplaces, massive confidence boost, you know, and then they can put on their CV, they facilitated or, you know, ran a conflict management workshop for a major corporate. Um, that's a pretty cool thing to have on your CV. And what we found actually is the, the, the corporate people will tell our young people things they would never normally share with a colleague. Okay. Because if you, if you think our guys are, you know, they're working in prisons or difficult um, gangs and so on. Yeah, you know, they're they're very skillful um, at getting people to talk who might not want to talk. So, um, and I think the juxtaposition is really quite helpful in this regard. You'll often tell a stranger something you won't tell, you know, a family member, won't you? And uh, so it's sort of that principle. But you know, that generates a decent amount of income for the leap, which is you know a very hard thing to raise money for because who wants to help you know violent young people? But, uh, it's but if we don't, it's doable. Yeah, it's doable. Yeah. That's very inspiring. I think we, we could probably talk for another uh, hour or two. North Shore is interesting stuff, and I may very well ask you to come on board for another episode at some point down the line. But uh, really very inspiring, and I hope listeners take away some uh, uh, bits of wisdom here and there that would enable them to uh, become more philanthropic and be more engaged in social entrepreneurship and think a bit more about sustainability. And that's the whole thing behind the Do One Better podcast. Patrick, look, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I always enjoy our conversations and now doing it formally here with this podcast. It's a great pleasure and I know people will walk away better informed and more inspired. So um, thanks very much for that. Before you head off, just a quick question. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how accessible are you? Can somebody drop you an email or a Twitter, direct message? What do you recommend? 
Uh, I'm very accessible. So my email is Patrick, that's P-A-T-R-I-C-K, E, Dunn, D-U-N-N-E, so that's all one word, Patrick E. Dunn, at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter, at Patrick E. Dunn. Perfect. Wonderful. And for our listeners as well, if you want to um, get some notes on this episode, resources, web links, and so forth, just visit the Do One Better podcast's uh, website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. And you'll find information about the episode and resources to follow through. Patrick, thank, thanks so much once again. Really an absolute pleasure. My pleasure indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at Ligi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <music>